Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week, we had a masterclass on common bile duct injuries by Dr. Francis Sutherland. Dr. Sutherland is a hepatobiliary surgeon at the University of Calgary. Dr. Sutherland talks about not just how CBD injuries happen, but why they happen and the cognitive biases that lead up to them. Please check out the show notes for videos and papers that supplement our discussion. I'm born in Edmonton. I don't like to tell people that, but we moved to Calgary in uh, 1960. Dad was an ophthalmologist and uh, I grew up here largely going to the mountains to go skiing and did my med school here and uh, and then uh, uh, my surgical training here and did a two-year transplant fellowship, kidney and liver in London, Ontario with uh, um, a fellow named Bill Wall and, the, and of course Dave Grant and uh, really got my grounding in uh, uh, liver liver and bowel duct surgery uh, uh, there and came back to Calgary in 1990 and uh, started in with uh, uh, general surgery and um, a small amount of hepatobiliary, but mostly transplant. I ran the kidney transplant program here for about eight years until I kind of burned out and, and then went back to uh, to do a sabbatical in, in, in France. So we flew the whole family over to Rennes. It's a small place in Brittany. And we did a, uh, a wonderful sabbatical with a fellow named Bernard Lunwa, who was uh, really a pioneer hepatobiliary surgeon. Uh, and uh, and it, it was a marvelous year and really got me going on HPB surgery, which I came back and really for the past 20 years have been doing HPB both at the Peter Lougheed and here in Foothills. Well, that's the that's the nutshell. That's the. You really have a, a perspective on the way that surgery has evolved, both locally in Calgary, obviously, but also more generally. And uh, I think one of the neat, amazing things about what you just described is you going to do a sabbatical in France. So I'm curious what that experience was like after having done obviously a lot of surgery for those few years, um, doing transplant surgery, and then deliberately going and doing a sabbatical in France and what that experience was like. And the second thing, just just to add, add on to that, is that I think as part of that experience, you actually ended up writing a review that's in JAMA um, that that talks about the, the life of Cunard, who, who the liver segment system is named after. Could you talk about uh, both those things? I, I, you know, I highly recommend sabbaticals for surgeons. And I, I know it's a very difficult thing to do because to step away from your practice and your referral base is, uh, is very hard. But I, you know, I had an opportunity when I stopped transplant to retool and I got what's called a professor associate position in France. And the French government puts these out every year and they basically pay people outside of France to come and learn how to do things properly. And uh, the, the French uh, have a long history of, of liver surgery going back to uh, uh, Lortin Jacob and the first uh, uh, hepatectomy and, uh, of course, Claude Quinault and, and then a whole string of uh, 
of liver surgeons, including uh, Bernard Lunois. So uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to take our, our young children and then try to learn French and, and try to immerse ourselves in, in the culture. Uh, Bernard and I would operate every day, just him and I. One case, we, we'd stop for lunch and, and uh, it, was a, it was quite an experience. Uh, uh, I have to recommend it to anybody. In, in, in terms of Claude Quinault, I spent a lot of my time studying anatomy. Uh, and for some reason, liver anatomy has really uh, uh, fascinated me. And this was an opportunity for me to sit down and, and read all the books. And, and one day I was talking to, to uh, Bernard and just saying uh, how much I've been reading uh, Claude Quinault. And he had a copy of his original book, uh, Le Foie. Uh, and I asked him about him. He said, oh, he's in Paris. He's still still alive. And uh, uh, and he said he would introduce me. And so I, I had a friend in uh, Wren who I'd met from, from uh, uh, Ottawa, and she was a historian of all things. And she and I got on the train and went to Paris and interviewed Claude Quinault in his uh, apartment in, in Paris and spent, you know, three or four hours with him talking about uh, um, his work on uh, liver anatomy and how he did all his casts and um, and his his life in in surgery and all the innovations that he'd done. So, and and of course that he it was all in French and she spoke perfect French and we translated it and eventually resulted in an article, uh, Claude Quinault and is really his biography. So it was a it was a life, lifetime experience for sure. I'd highly recommend uh, any of our listeners to read that paper. It's really fascinating read and, and really enjoyable. As I sort of alluded to in, in my previous comment, you, you obviously have been able to see the evolution of the way surgery has gone, particularly with with regards to HPV. You've, you've all had your fingers in so many different aspects of surgery, from transplant to HPV, and then obviously you know, you, you've done the full gamut of, of general surgery uh, across the board here in Calgary. Can you, what do you think are like the big things that have changed in your mind? Uh, you know, obviously the, the technological advances, but I'm thinking more along the lines of the way that we work and the way that we practice. What are the, the big things that sort of have shifted over the course of your career that you perhaps weren't even expecting? Well, I mean, who can expect, who can really predict what's going to happen in the future? And uh, gosh, you know, you have to really think hard to go back 30 years to how it was and when I started my training, family doctors were still doing inguinal hernia repairs at the Foothills Hospital. And we look at how, how surgery has changed. And, and really, one of the areas that it's probably changed the most is in, just in terms of subspecialization and, and, and getting everybody in to do a, a, a little more narrower practice and the resulting massive improvements in the quality of uh, surgical care that's been delivered, I think is, is probably the biggest change. Um, we, we tend to be more narrow and we tend to be better at what we do now. And uh, I think it's been to a, a great benefit to our, uh, to our patients. Um, not that general surgeon surgeons aren't still important, but you know, I think the, the idea of the generalist being able to do it all is just, uh, it, it doesn't work anymore. And the other thing that's big changed is that the, the fact that we treat almost every patient. There's not, 
anybody where we say, oh, there's nothing you can do for you. We, we really have extended the indications for surgery and uh, uh, I think can help a lot more people. Now that's a, that's an interesting perspective. Um, you know, being able to tell someone that you can't treat them that you're right is not something that we we do often, even in no. HPV, which is which is interesting. Um, I was hoping that um, we would go deep on on bile duct injuries and and uh, some of the concepts that you've really pioneered that surround it. You know, for me, and I don't just say this because you're my mentor and my partner, but I think of the titans of, of modern bile duct injury uh, work. I think of Michelle Mercado in Mexico. I think of Keith Lamo in the U.S. and Steve Strasberg. And I would put you, you know, as the fourth men, member of that selective group, you've really thought about these deeply and profoundly for a very long period of time. I'm curious to start out with then, what prompted you to think about them in such a deep way, even more than most HPB surgeons? Why has it been such an interest for you for so long? Well, thanks, Chad. Uh, yeah, I think when I uh, when I came back from uh, from France in 1999 um, and started in really hard at at my HPB uh, surgery practice, um, I just started to see a lot of a lot of these injuries and uh, really got the the sense of how devastating the injury is to uh, to the patients, but not just the patients, to the surgeons themselves. I, I mean, it is. An emotionally draining experience, uh, a loss of confidence in the consequences, can have a profound effect on uh, on someone's career. So there's lots of reasons to try to to avoid these these injuries. And so it was after fixing and and dealing with the uh, uh, you know the fallout from a lot of these injuries that I really started to get an interest and started to read. Um, now clearly, uh, I went through the the period of introduction of laparoscopic cholecystectomy and saw the rates go massively up and they and then stay up really they've stayed up through my whole career um and then you know uh, starting to read and then starting to to see people trying to to get a handle on it you know steve strasberg's uh critical view of safety in 1995 but really the landmark papers that got me going were, uh, you know, Lawrence Way's paper uh, on uh, the illusion of bile duct injuries and the fact that it's really not a, a technical error, it's a, an error in perception. And it's the, this whole idea of, 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 of difficulty in perception that, uh, that really uh, struck me as particularly interesting. And then after that, I, you know, standing on the shoulder of, of giants, uh, 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 an Australian surgeon named uh, Thomas Hugh uh, has written a lot about the navigation error that, that bile duct injuries are on top of the illusion. And uh, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he's a guy that went over and did a, a full sabbatical, a full master's on uh, bile duct injuries and then has written extensively on uh, landmarking and the illusion and a lot of the things that I've just extended the observations. And so a lot of this, a lot of what I'm talking about isn't, isn't original, but it is something that I've, I've taken up from, from these other you know, giants in the field. Well, you're right, but you're also you know, overly humble. I, I assure you of that. When I see you talk about this, um, 
especially recently, you sort of divide your your grand rounds or your lectures into two dominant areas. The first is you, you seem to talk about how these injuries happen, and the second is avoiding them, which I think makes a lot of sense. So I was wondering if you could start us off then with how they happen, what the surgeon, what's going on in that surgeon's mind, and failures of navigation and correction in particular. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I've tried to com compartmentalize it in terms of why it happens, uh, and and really compartmentalize it into the three things, and in terms of you know what is our how how do we think you know, and I, and one of the the things that really got me going on this was was really reading Daniel Kahneman's book uh, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, and 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 then getting interested in in cognitive psychology. And, and that really got me going in terms of thinking about trying to apply that to, uh, to surgery and, and how we think when we operate and, and, and how we've inherited a lot of our basic thought processes from our, our ancestors and, and how, how did Homo sapiens really function on the African savanna and, and how, how the thinking, how the fact that they're you know, we've been mostly uh, uh, all our all our evolution has been as big game hunters, and and how that process goes, and how the fact that we have to be thinking very quickly, we have to uh, be able to process, uh, deal with ambiguity, deal with uncertainty, and make an indefinite percept a, a definite, and and move forward. And that you see that in the way surgeons operate. We we think very quickly, we use heuristics and uh, shortcuts, and uh, we move very for very quickly forward. And that whole concept uh, really gets, gets, gets uh, consolidated in the idea that we operate with cognitive maps, and we place the map or, or the, the construct onto the anatomy that we find and then this allows us to move very quickly forward without, uh, without with making a lot of assumptions and with without dissecting everything carefully. We can, we can basically put our map on the basis of a few landmarks and then do the dissection. So, uh, uh, cognitive maps are are really one of the things that I really started to think about a lot. And there's a uh, a professor here at the University of Calgary named Giuseppe Aria who I've I've uh, uh, talked to and collaborated with a little bit, and he is doing all kinds of original research on cognitive maps in our large-scale environment and, and how we use cognitive maps to uh, navigate. And, and that concept of large-scale environment cognitive maps, we basically take and look, about, look at the surgeon's small-scale environment and how we use cognitive maps to navigate through our, our uh, operative field based on, on uh, landmarks and uh, knowledge that we've stored over many, many years of, uh, of developing our skills. And when you think about it carefully, it, uh, all our training and all the work we do in terms of, of understanding surgery is really just building up a, a library of cognitive maps and they're schematized and we hold them in our, in our mind and we bring them forward whenever the situation arises and, and use them in our, our dissections. And, and so if you understand the idea of cognitive maps and how surgeons think, then you can apply that to say, well, what happens when it goes wrong? And uh, that is 
really a little bit about why we we fail to fail to navigate. I used to call it a failure of perception, but now I call it a failure of navigation based on a lot of uh, Thomas Hughes' work. And so the the concept here is that um, a surgeon uh, is navigates his field, and and at the starting point of the operation, there's a critical moment where he uses the anatomy present and places his his or her cognitive map on the area to operate. That's the concept. And so if you get that starting point wrong in your dissection, then everything else that goes after that can be a, a disaster. And for cognitive maps and for the, the subhepatic space, uh, the, the mistake would be that say there's some inflammation and there's no proper hepatobiliary triangle, your attention is diverted over to the central port of hepatis, you place your cognitive map uh, uh, by mistake in that area, and then start, start your dissection. And then what, what, what results is um, the division of the, of the common hepatic duct as if it's the cystic duct, and then working your way up uh, making a critical view of safety, working your right way up the left side of the bile duct, like it is the underside of the gallbladder, and then using cautery to go right through the common hepatic duct. Or if you're really disoriented, go right through the hilar plate and do uh, a hilar plate injury, which is, is a, of course, even more of a disaster. Now, the really sinister thing about this is that once you've divided through the bile duct, it places you back in the right plane. You take out the gallbladder and half of these cases, the surgeons don't even recognize that uh, what they've done is, is take out a chunk of, of gallbladder and uh, uh, left the bile duct, uh, hepatic duct open. So uh, it's, a, it's a really a difficult thing to understand, but I think that a cognitive map gives us a, a little bit of an idea how the navigation error actually happens. The second thing that we've looked at, and, and we, we did this together, is to look at uh, a, an illusion. And, and it was really Lawrence Way that really brought that forward, that, that what's happening to the surgeons is an optical illusion. And that's a situation where even quickly our automatic thinking system misinterprets the, the uh, anatomy present. and. And then even with a lot of thought and careful analysis, you still get it wrong. So it's a very dangerous situation for a surgeon. And uh, it was Hugh that really showed a diagram where the bile duct kinks and, and this is how the illusion happens. And this is what brings the surgeon into the central portohepatis triangle, looking at that kink with the pulling of the uh, 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 Hartman's pouch, the kinking of the common hepatic and the common bile duct. So we did a little study where we looked and see, does this really happen? Does the bile duct really kink? And so we took you know, over 100 pictures and, and then analyzed it. And we found out that, yeah, the, the bile duct really can kink. And, and the, the, the angle that it produces can, be, can overlap with the angles of the, of the hepatobiliary triangle. So we thought that that really shows that, indeed, an illusion may be part of this injury. So that's our failure of navigation. And, and then the third part of it, the third part of this triad is a failure of correction. And, and this really deals with why when we 
start making an error, do we not find it, correct it, and then get back into the right area. And this deals with cognitive biases, which are, are systematic errors that we all make. You know, it's sort of jumping to conclusions and, and not, not fixing them. And, and some of them that are particular, there's hundreds of them, but some of them that are particular to surgeons are um, primacy, so that we, what we see first, it's difficult to get off that. Um, uh, availability bias, and that's, there's a, it's hard to think of another avenue to uh, uh, operate in. Um, action bias, I mean, we all wanna go forward. We wanna go forward quickly. So there's a, a, a bias to, to keep things moving. Um, confirmation bias, uh, probably the, the granddaddy is that once we decide what we're gonna do and what the things is, everything else we see confirms our original, our original uh, opinion. Um, and lastly, overconfidence and surgeons suffer from this and it can get as bad as hubris. So those can all predispose to, to errors. And those are all, you know, inherited things that we, that we do. So those are, the, those are the three areas that we worked on. The cognitive maps are really the, the central part of, of, and sort of what, what we've taken beyond the, the simple uh, failure of perception. I always get so excited when someone talks about Daniel Kahneman. Just, I just think his work has impacted so many different areas of, of the way we think, the way we understand, the way that we think. Uh, just, just this week, I was reading a paper of his that, that uh, where he looked at pain that people had at, uh, after having colonoscopy and just like a simple thing that or if they left the scope in at the end of the case uh, without moving it so that the very end of the case was uh, less painful, patients had less, uh, had a better overall experience. Like there's just so many things that Kahneman has had, has, had an impact on. I, uh, I, I, read, I read his book over and over. And every time I read it, I learn something new. Um, you know, and just the the whole concept of how we learn things, and 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 how a a resident operates gets better at operating versus versus somebody who's experienced. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, he actually has a new book that's that's coming out uh, recently, as well, um, which is I, I think is also going to be equally as fascinating. I wanted to ask you though, so so there's there's two parts. One is I remember as a resident, you had actually done a, a, some studies and looked at actually how people use landmarking. Um, and I, I remember being part of this study where you actually had us kind of uh, this virtual map when you were kind of going through this city and you uh, asked participants to kind of recreate the, their mental map. I'm curious what that mm -hmm. study showed. And then the second, the second question I have for you is why is it, why was there an increase? Like what's different about laparoscopic surgery that this, optical illusion happens where you think that you're dissecting on the cystic duct, but you're actually dissecting on the common bile duct. Really, now we're getting into the whole, the whole idea of how do we avoid bile duct injuries? And that's where the, uh, the landmarking study, and I like to say that this is my landmark study. It's the only way I'll ever say it. And uh, Chad was obviously involved with this uh, uh, significantly. So, I mean, Thomas Hugh, again, one of my heroes, uh, he published a paper in, uh, oh, it's gotta be in the 90s, looking at the sulcus of Rouvier as a landmark for navigating the uh, cholecystectomy. 
And so that really got me thinking that uh, perhaps there are other landmarks there that will help us set our cognitive map, set our, our navigation so that we can navigate clearly with, a, a, with a, the right starting point. And uh, so we did a little study where we uh, basically uh, took pictures and, and looked at the subhepatic space in about 130 consecutive laparoscopic cholecystectomies. And then we analyzed and, and cataloged uh, the landmarks below the uh, liver that could be used to orient for cholecystectomy. And you know, there's three things about a landmark you have to have to make it useful. I mean, the first thing is it has to be there uh, in a large number of the cases. Uh, it, the second is it has to be, you know, easy to identify and, and find. Uh, and lastly, it has to give you good relational information about the critical structures that you're either, to, either trying to find or avoid. So uh, we were looking for landmarks that would meet those criteria. And after the review of 130 of these cases, we came up with, with five landmarks and, and uh, that could cons are consistently there a lot and, and give good information on where you are in space, given that spatial disorientation is, is the ultimate mistake. And uh, Chad came up with the, the mnemonic be safe. So the five landmarks are, first of all, the bile duct, which is probably the best landmark. If you were trying to avoid the bile duct, then you can identify the bile duct. Well, that, that really is, is critical. And that's what a lot of a lot of our maneuvers are. That's what the clangiograms for and, and ultrasound and all the other things that they've used to uh, um, prevent injury. Um, so we found actually that, you know, in almost 80% of the cases, if you push the duodenum down or you push the liver up, that you can see a portion of the bile duct and identify where it is. I, I think that's a useful observation in and of itself. Uh, the, the second landmark was the sulcus of Rouvier. Again, from, from Hughes' work, it's an excellent landmark because it, it, it is always at or below the hepatobiliary triangle. So if you're operating below the sulcus of Rouvier, you're too low. Uh, the third one was the hepatic artery, uh, not really recognized before, but if you look carefully, you can almost always see the pulsation of the left hepatic artery. And it tells you where the left side of the porta hepatis is. Uh, the, the third landmark is the, the umbilical fissure. Again, if you're below the umbilical fissure, you're way too far patients to the patient's left. And the last landmark is E for enteric, and that really means the duodenum. If you're close to the duodenum, you're too low. So, I mean, the, the navigation error is, to understand it, it's when you're, you're operating in the port of hepatitis, you're too far to the patient's left and you're too low. So if you see that you, you use these landmarks and you see that you're in that space or you're, you're under the umbilical fossa or you're under the uh, sulcus of Rouvier or you could, you're on the left side of the bile duct, you know three-dimensionally that you are in the wrong space and, and the flag should go up and you have to reorient. We're all talking about orienting during laparoscopic cholecystectomy. The laparoscope question. Well, it's, it is a very interesting question. And, and, and it is interesting that 
in the early 90s when bile duct injuries went crazy, that's when the laparoscope was, was introduced. And there's several things that happen in a laparoscope that you don't get when you're open. You, when you're open, you really do look and understand the, the subhepatic space and the, the, uh, the uh, porta hepatis, the stomach, the, the markings on the liver. And when you're doing the laparoscope or using a laparoscope, your view becomes very much diminished, very much narrowed. And you tend to focus and get close and you lose all of those landmarks. So it's very much easier to become disoriented and, and uh, uh, you know, misplace your, your, your map. And the other thing that I think is really important is that, you know, the old time general surgeons that, that would do, you know, common duct explorations and they would do maybe a few whipples and some gastrectomies. I mean, they really understood the, the porta habitus and of course, open cholecystectomies. And the, the students, the, the, the kids that are coming out today, they don't have that experience. So their cognitive map is very diminished. They don't have a full understanding anymore of this anatomy. And really the be safe landmarks to orient during laparoscopic cholecystectomy are a way for our young surgeons to expand their cognitive map so they can, they can orient more correctly. Recently listened to a podcast, and I'll link to it here in the, in the show notes, uh, where there was a, there was a great discussion uh, among a bunch, bunch of different surgeons, and they were actually talking about fenestrating um, and subtotal gallbladders. And, and one of the, there was sort of one camp that said, well, why, why would you do this subtotal or a fenestrating when you could open and use your hand and really try to get get the gallbladder out that way. And the other group was saying, well, you know, I don't, you know, you can get into all sorts of trouble doing that as well. It's slightly off our topic of cognitive illusions, but I'm curious, you know, with this divide in training regimes and training experience, how you sort of view the move of opening when you're struggling to actually find the critical view. Well, I, I, I think it, it really uh, uh, talks a lot about uh, how things have changed for, uh, for surgeons. And, and uh, uh, really, uh, I think it's really important for surgeons to know what they're capable of. of. I think it is one fundamental thing uh, that you know, really deals with patient safety. And it is unfortunate that many young surgeons really don't don't feel they have the capability to do an open cholecystectomy. And it's hard to train to do a open cholecystectomy because you might only see them when you're doing your hepatobiliary rotation and there might only be a few and they're done with normal gallbladders too. So uh, getting that experience of an open cholecystectomy with an inflamed gallbladder is, uh, is extremely difficult. Now, the idea of a subtotal, I, you know, I do them all the time and I, I think, uh, I think it's the way to go. And I, I do them open and I do them laparoscopic. And I, you know, I, my default because I'm comfortable is to, is to go open. Uh, I think the idea, idea that you always have to remove the gallbladder is, is just wrong. Uh, no gallbladder absolutely has to be removed. And we can treat these things with, with, with tubes and, and uh, the, the radiologist can fish the stones out and crush them. So we shouldn't ever feel pressured to, to take out a gallbladder. The other thing is that 
sometimes the gallbladder wall doesn't even exist. So if you're trying to take out a gallbladder where, there, where it doesn't exist, you're really going to hurt something. Uh, and the gallbladder might be fused to the common bile duct. It can be fused or non-existent to the uh, uh, duodenum or liver. And more and more, I find myself taking out as much of the gallbladder as I'm comfortable with. I think the key is probably taking out all the stones and then either closing the stump or, or just draining it. And it's the safest thing to do. Um, and it, you really, you can keep yourself out of trouble. It's when you try to do too much that you really can, can make things go badly. I, I think that's, that's beautifully said, obviously. And I, I would point our readers to, again, to Strasburg's classification of subtotal cholecystectomies in General American College, I think about 2016 mm -hmm. or so. You know, he talks about fenestrating cholecystectomy versus reconstituting cholecystectomy under the umbrella of partial cholecystectomy. And I, I think, you know, the, the classification is a little bit arbitrary, but he, it is well defined as, you know, the fenestrating side of things doesn't really occlude the gallbladder, whereas your reconstitution version of it will leave a remnant gallbladder. You know, one of the things I think that we all see as HPB surgeons in terms of referrals, um, you know, is more and more remnant cholecystitis and, and biliary colic is related to that. And certainly I think your comment about removing the stones is probably critical. Eh? Yeah, you know, I, I've never had to go back and take out a stump uh, when the surgeon's taken out the stones or I've taken out the stones. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's only when when that's not done that you uh, you have, you know, they can get recurrent. And it's not a very fun operation to to go back. <laughs> oh, no, it's true. I, mean, I always go laparoscopic, but then some of them go open. So for sure. Good. I wanted to sneak back. You, you know, you used the sentence, but we certainly haven't explored it. And, and, and that's interoperative cholangiography. And I, I think we all know that these large multinational population-based studies all show that routine interoperative cholangiography is certainly doesn't seem to be beneficial or in particular lower your, your bile duct injury rate overall. But I'm curious, you know, I think as, as, as a group, we don't we certainly don't do very many. Um, why do you think that is? And do you think there is a role for uh, someone who's not an HPB surgeon and less comfortable with biliary anatomy maybe to do that procedure or, or not? Not. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I always thought it was a good skill to be able to do a cholangiogram and uh, really uh, with, with it being, with my thoughts of this being a navigation error, um, I'm just not sure that, you know, uh, cutting a hole in a, in a duct and, and, and putting a tube in and doing a, a, an x-ray, an x-ray that, you know, you're probably not going to be able to interpret properly is, is really the, the proper avenue for, uh, you know, finding out where you are when you're disoriented. Uh, I think really, uh, you know, the, the backing up and the, and the, the subtotal cholecystectomy the limited subtotal cholecystectomy is probably a better strategy. Um, having said that, I mean, identifying the bile duct is one of our landmarks. And I think apart from cholangiography, uh, ultrasound or uh, yeah, endocyanin in green or some of the other technologies for identifying that landmark, I'd have no, no problem with those whatsoever. But I just don't think that 
um, you know, that cutting the bile duct open and doing a cholangiogram is, is a good idea. You know, obviously I'm biased based on yeah. your education and, and investment in me, but I, I would certainly agree. You know, um, it's, uh, it, it is interesting as the technologies change, you're right. And, and, and indesign and green is certainly pushed hard by industry, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure it changes the equation at all, really. No, I, 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 I think we, we have to rely on our, our operative technique and maybe not little less on technology, but I think one of the things I wanted to say that I really haven't mentioned so far is that this idea of the be safe landmarks, I think is uh, something that we can add on to all the other aspects. If these are not mutually exclusive, looking for be safe landmarks uh, and the, you know, the Bill Walls six clip rule or the critical view of safety are all something that we can do all of these things. None of them are, have primacy as far as I, I'm concerned. And one of the things that when we talk about beef safe landmarks, we're really talking about taking a timeout. And you know, there's more written about taking a timeout now. And obviously it's a situation where you can either slow down like Carol Ann Moulton, slow down and, and uh, in a difficult critical situation. And it can go right through to stopping, right through to stopping and getting another eyes, eye, pair of eyes on the uh, difficult situation. So. Our, our idea really is to take a timeout, a, a be safe or bile duct timeout at the beginning of the procedure and uh, set your, use the landmarks, take seconds, back the camera out, look at all the landmarks, set your map and then go forward. And then maybe even take another timeout before you start clipping any critical structures. And timeouts are, are important because there is a strategy to de-bias our thinking take us from Kahneman's system one automatic thinking to the more deep figure it out type system two thinking. And, uh, you know, that's what the, what the uh, uh, safe surgery checklist is. A surgeon should be using, you know, timeouts all the time as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about the fact that the critical view of safety um, as this sort of a schema and, and a way of trying to avoid this problem has been there now for, I think, almost 40 years, if I'm not mistaken, 30, at least 30 years. 1995. Yeah, so it's been out yeah. for a long time. And yeah, so, for sure. you know, we still are seeing uh, relatively stable rates of bile duct injuries. Um, I think not as quite as high, if I remember correctly, not quite as high as when they f first came out, no. but certainly stable rates. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you talked about this idea of timeouts, but do you ever think that getting to a, you know, a zero bile duct injury rate or a zero bile duct injury event type of thing, if that's achievable and what we yeah. would need to be able to do to, to get there? Well, no, I don't. Uh, I think there are certain limits to uh, uh, human, human endeavors, uh, uh, technical situations that we can only get to be so good. And some people will argue that maybe we've reached that limit with, uh, with bile duct injury rates at the, you know, 0 0.3 and 0.4%. And I, I'm not so sure we've, we've, uh, uh, we've arrived at, at the best we can do. I, I think we can do better. Um, so that's why, hence the, 
the idea of, uh, uh, of of a new strategy. You know, these are very changing surgeon, changing human behavior is extremely difficult and uh, uh, happens very slowly. Um, you you should have to, you should ask yourself, well, why why does not why does the critical view of safety not won't work? And uh, I think there's a conceptual difference. Uh, the critical view of safety tells you where you should be. Um, the Be Safe Landmarks perhaps tells you more where you shouldn't be. So they're, they're, they're it's kind of almost fundamentally different. Uh, it's the critical view of safety is not really a navigation uh, 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 strategy. And it, you sometimes the, you know, the, the habit patibular triangle just, it doesn't exist. And uh, there's been a few papers that have shown surgeons can be can be convinced that they're making a critical view of safety when they're in fact making it in the uh, porta habitus triangle. Um, so it's it's uh, well, it's a I shouldn't say it's not a it's not a it is a good strategy, but it's not the be all and end all. I hope Steve's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, to, uh, we want to sort of end this segment or end the podcast. And again, thank you for your time with it. With a question about training I have for you, you know, as you've talked about, you've been in this game very deep for well over three decades. And I'm, I'm curious when it comes to safe cholecystectomy, avoiding uh, bile duct injuries and understanding biliary anatomy in the modern training era. And, and you're, you teach residents and fellows every single day. What advice would you give those trainees in terms of, you know, recruiting and, and obtaining that knowledge and, and that expertise technically to the best that they can, again, with the current paradigm, training paradigm in mind? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think Kahneman really dealt with this in his book a bit. I, I, I think that um, surgeons have a, a wonderful opportunity in training in that, uh, what we do, uh, we receive immediate feedback. We receive feedback from our operative field and we receive feedback from our mentors. And um, when you're doing something and, and someone is, is correcting you and, and you see the results right away, it's a, it's a really powerful learning situation. Uh, I think that from a cognitive uh cognitive psychology point of view, from a, 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 a cognitive map point of view, really the idea is to explore your environment and spend as much time as you can exploring your environment and, and, and getting feedback. And so, you know, you see uh, uh, residents start with basically no cognitive map whatsoever. And the only way to develop that cognitive map is to be there and to be there over and over and over again. So, you know, you, know, you might say, well, I've already seen a cholecystectomy. No, have you seen 100? Have you seen 500 cholecystectomies? Because that's how long it takes to really get good at it. And we're not just, not just the basic anatomy, all the different variations of anatomy and all the different tissues and how the different tissues uh, uh, basically behave and separate or don't separate. And it's a very complicated. And the only way you can be there is to get there, work hard at it, and, and, and develop your 
your repertoire of cognitive maps that, that you can use throughout your whole life. Um, yeah, and when you're young, you can develop cognitive maps. There's a lot of evidence now that when you get to be old, and, and, and Chad, old means more than 46, um, you lose the ability to create new cognitive maps and to use your maps effectively. So that there's something to think about. Well, that's perfect because I'm older than 46. So <laughs> I, I'm good. The, <laughs> I know, I'm bugging you. The, the, the last question we want to ask you, and we try and ask everyone, is, as you know, having listened to some of these podcasts, is, is if you were to go back and talk to a young Francis Sutherland, a, a keen-eyed in, uh, intern or early uh, junior resident, what sort of advice would you would you like to give yourself back in the day? Yeah, I think I'd probably say to myself, "Don't be so hard on yourself. Uh, 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 let your let 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 the mistakes float over you a little more easily than than and then beating yourself up." Uh, uh, I think sometimes uh, uh, we set uh, a bar for ourselves that is too high, and uh, we suffer for it. I would say concentrate more on 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 some specific areas where you can make a difference and don't try to be sort of all inclusive and uh, you know get outside and ride your bike more often i think you've been listening to cold steel the official podcast of the canadian journal of surgery if you like what you've heard please leave us a review on itunes we love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.